This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. Some of my favorite audiobooks in recent years have illuminated the experiences of women during World War II. If that's something you're also drawn to, download Sisters Under the Rising Sun from the multi-million copy best-selling author of The Tattooist of Auschwitz, Silka's Journey, and Three Sisters, Heather Morris. The audiobook is also narrated by Laura Carmichael, who starred as Lady Edith Crawley in Downton Abbey, and there are songs woven throughout the audiobook, including two from the Sydney Women's Vocal Orchestra and a dedication, author's note, and more read by the author. Start listening to Sisters Under the Rising Sun by Heather Morris now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Bopinski, and today, internationally best-selling author, Lynn Hightower, is here to discuss The Beautiful Risk, a provocative thriller about the collateral damage of grief and the adrenaline of revenge. Lynn is also the author of numerous other thrillers, and her novels have been included in the New York Times list of notable books and the London Times bestseller list. She's won the Seamus Award for Best First Private Eye Novel, and a W.H. Smith Fresh Talent Award. She teaches master novel classes in the UCLA Extension Writing Program and works as a manuscript consultant and writing coach for novelists. She and her very good German shepherd, Leah, live in Kentucky in a small Victorian cottage with a writing parlor. I want a writing parlor. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Lynn, welcome to A Bookish Home. Congratulations on The Beautiful Risk. I'm really excited to hear more about this one. Okay, I'm really glad to be here. And you know, I have a writing parlor, but I almost never write in it. <laughs> well, it's nice to have. It's nice um, to have. Yes. Well, um, there's so much to um, discuss with The Beautiful Risk. Um, so many interesting characters and plot lines. And um, I guess just first to start us off, can you tell listeners a bit more about the main character, Junie, and the situation she finds herself in at the start of this novel? Yes, um, Junie Lagarde, uh, she's my hero in the world. I wish I was just like her. Um, the book opens nine months after her husband dies uh, in a plane crash on Mount Blanc. This was a small plane crash, and it went up in flames. And her service dog, a German shepherd named Leo, was with her husband, and he pulled her husband out of the wreckage. And then when the... Um, when the rescue crews came, he got spooked and he disappeared into the um, into the that really uh, dangerous terrain of Mount Blanc and the Alps. And when the when the novel opens, she gets a call uh, from a police captain in France who has been investigating the plane crash and the death of her husband. And he tells her two things. Uh, So we get launched pretty quickly. And one is that the plane was sabotaged and her husband was murdered, which comes as a complete shock because he was just basically a French engineer. So what the heck, right? Mm -hmm. And second, he sends her video footage um, taken from some CCTV cameras in the area where they're watching wolves. And it shows a man who is wearing her husband's coat He has a haircut like her husband, and he's got Leo on a rope, but she knows this isn't her husband. It's like somebody who's trying to pretend he is, and he's got her dog, and she knows by the way Leo reacts to him that Leo doesn't like him, and he's trying to get away from him. So the first thing she says is, okay, my dog's alive. I'm going to go to France and 
I don't know what to do about all this stuff with my husband's plane crash, but I'm going to go get my dog. There's so many interesting layers, even right from the start, and so much to go into with this character. And it just makes me wonder how this book started for you. Was it a particular, um, like the setting in France? Was it a certain character, a certain plot line? Sort of what was the kind of beginning? Because it bloomed into um, kind of this intricate this intricate read. But where did it start? Well, um, I decided to write the book after my own husband, a French engineer, and my dog, Leo, uh, they both passed away pretty close together at the same time. Oh, and um, yeah, uh, it was, um, you know, grief is a strange thing. It's not what people think it is. It's very hard. It's very overwhelming. It's also really mainly love. And the, the most interesting thing for me was that it just created this hot creative fire okay and all i wanted to do was write and work on my novel and i got this novel idea and i mean i feel like i did my best writing now uh it is so strange how grief changes you and so what i wanted to write about i wanted to take this grieving widow junie and send her to france and let her have a most fabulous adventure finding her dog uh who is also like i also have a, another german shepherd named leah who is my hearing loss service dog and i thought i'm coming out of the closet my husband died i'm a widow i am deep in grief and it's nothing like anybody told me it would be and um i have a hearing loss it's hereditary and i always kept that secret it, i don't know why it just made me feel vulnerable it made me feel less than and um i just thought you know what i'm gonna let the world know i have hearing loss i've got a hearing dog a not perfect hearing dog who can be very naughty and not do things <laughs> the hearing dog is supposed to do which i think is hilarious and also true of most service dogs uh well maybe not my service dog i'll put it that way and uh I just love the authenticity and I loved going to France on an adventure with Junie. Oh, that's so, that's so interesting. And you, it, it was writing then because the character and some of her experiences were so similar. Mm -hmm. Did it feel like an escape or did it feel more like confronting the grief and, um, you know, any experiences or like confronting misconceptions around hearing loss? Like, did it feel like an escape or more of like a confrontation of things? That's so interesting because I think it's a combination. It was an escape. It allowed me to go on an adventure, you know, to France, to a place that I loved, to a place that my husband loved. It allowed me to um, give Junie a really fabulous romantic story, um, which... I know it sounds impossible, but it turns out to have a very nice, lovely ending to me anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and uh, it was very therapeutic. It was like processing it. It was so strange. It was because like writing was the best time of the day. I only wanted to live in this world. Okay. Uh, and she was always a step ahead of me in her grief. So I could follow along behind her and, you know, I'm not a polite widow. Grief makes me angry when people 
you know, all the things that people say are true or not, and people have expectations of you. And it just, um, you know, she calls people on it. She speaks her mind. And um, I love that about her. And I'm like, yeah, I can do the same thing. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you can do it. I can do it. You know, and she also, she's very vocal about um, people can be very, uh, unkind if you have a hearing loss and they don't know it and they don't mean most of the time they don't mean to be unkind so Junie just says hey this is the way it is deal with it and I absolutely love it when she does that yeah she I I love the way she speaks her mind too and I feel like she talks about grief making her fearless in a way is that one of the I guess I'm kind of curious what you think people say it's like and what it's and more what it's really like it, I feel like one thing for her is it feels like it makes her fearless I agree I believe that's one of the gifts of grief okay to me it feels like well the worst has already happened I have nothing to worry about anymore and she um that is a superpower it feels like a superpower to me because you know I do what I want to do I, I, afterwards, I just thought, you know, these are the things I want to keep in my life and that these are the things I don't, you know, when people talk about a bucket list, I have the opposite. Let's put it nicely and call it a chuck it list, even though those are not the two words that usually come to my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, gosh, that's powerful. You get rid of so many things that you thought were so important that you had to do that you were pressured to do by culture. And you're like, yeah, no. Yeah, so love me for it or just back off. And mm-hmm. uh, it could be, you know, I was, well, as my therapist says, Lynn, you're very unfiltered these days. <laughs> I what feel like you nice, need to say the same. <laughs> what a nice way to put that, you know. I ended friendships where I, I just had this clarity, like, oh, this person just takes advantage of me. Why have I put up with this? And mm-hmm. so, I mean, that was pretty tough stuff, you know made a lot of people angry. I won't say I'm proud of that, but secretly I really am. I just really am. <laughs> it's just it's like, it's not that it's licensed to be unkind. I'm not saying that. It is licensed to be rock hard clear. You just see things the way you never really realized. Your perception is on fire and you're like, oh, so these are the things I will put up with and these are the things I will not put up with. And it's empowering. It's like clears out space for the life you want to live. And I want a smaller life, more downsized, more focused. I know what I want to do. I don't want to do anything else. And and there's no distraction. And you, you know, when, when the person, you know, your soulmate dies, you feel like, well, I don't want a future. And you, that first, that feels unbearably sad, right? But it's not because basically you're living right now and you're saying, um, whatever I want, I'm taking it now. And I'm not waiting mm-hmm. 20 years or 30 years or planning. You know, you know how you always try and make do your retirement and think, well, how long am I going to live? You know, well, I looked at it and I thought, okay. I'll take about 10 more years. I'm going to blow everything out in 10 years and have a good 10 years after that. Who knows? <laughs> it's so yeah, empowering because I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
I think it's interesting too that it um, that that grief sort of lit a creative fire, and it and it makes me wonder. So layered in, we also have things like eco terrorism. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Um, I wondered how that came into it for you, and mm-hmm. I, I guess just along with that, if there's any. So, so it sounds like France was already a place that um, you knew really well. Was mm-hmm. there research you needed to do or places you needed to go back to? Were there things for the eco-terrorism plot you needed to kind of research? What was that like? Well, the eco-terrorism plot came to me because, A, um, you know, climate change is a big deal. And mm-hmm. I did some research. And I was fascinated with actually the manufacturing of hydrogen, which sounds incredibly dull. But, um, you know, my, my husband was like that French engineer. He was so brilliant. He could walk into any manufacturing plant that was having a problem and analyze it so quickly and say, this is a short-term fix. This is the long-term fix. This keeps us on the line. It keeps everybody employed. And he just had this incredible skill set, and he was very much in demand. But he also made people so angry, all right? He was French. He was not going to be a good old boy. If they were doing shady things on the side, he was going to call them on it. He was going to report them on it. He got fired a lot, which was, mm. <laughs> oh, no, but I loved it because I admired him for that, you know. But, you know, the Japanese loved him because those pe- those manufacturing Oh, that manufacturing culture is about, tell, let's look at the problem and grab hold of it, right? The Germans loved him. Uh, it's just the Americans that didn't like him so much, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole other world out there. But on the eco-terrorism, you know, it, it just came very close to home, Um you know, you, you, you read about all of the, the, the glaciers melting and all of those things, but then, you know, there was a terrible fire in Gatlinburg, Tennessee in 2016, um, just after the election, around Thanksgiving, way after the election. And um, it, it went out of control and it swept through that town. It's all full of wooden chalets and mountain twisty roads and forests and tourists who don't know how to get out. And it was, it was, it was, it really shook me up because I'd been to Gatlinburg several times and, and I liked the people there and I thought they were lovely. And I mean, it's a crazy place for a vacation, but you just got to get in the mood, right? For elves and all those things. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they just have elves workshops and cotton candy and pork chop sandwiches. And why not? That's not a bad way to spend an afternoon. <laughs> no. no. And then, and then the reaction in so many well-known national newspapers the comment sections was so brutal. Everybody in the country was angry about the election one way or another. And suddenly people in the South became a wonderful, um, you know, wonderful to kick around because evidently the election was their fault, which I won't get into politics. I don't agree with it. What I think is that there is a lot of red state, blue state, um, media that is meant to keep everybody in this country at each other's throats so that we don't hold the people accountable who should be held accountable. All right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and no matter what your politics are to vilify people, you know, to vilify a man whose wife, three children and their dog went up in flames and died so quick. I'm sorry you have a problem if you're going to do that and it hurts you too. You know, the people who made the comments, 
I mean, that must come from a really bad place inside, right? So I'm not going to glorify them. But what I'm going to say is it shook me up. And uh, and so that's what my um, terrorist went through. And I had a great deal of compassion for her. In fact, my editor had to keep reminding me, you realize she does heinous things. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, let me let me course correct here just a little bit. <laughs> but um, I, I thought her manifesto was fascinating, and I thought she was incisive. And I think the woman she could have been versus the woman she she became after she went through that trauma, that push pull really interested me. How you can go dark or not, you know, that fascinates yeah. me. So interesting. And, you know, you're also bringing the reader along to this part of France. I know I, I've never traveled to. Um, what did you do to kind of try to capture that setting and the people? And because and, I really felt so transported. Well, I love to hear you say that. Um, you know, I, I had not been to Annecy before I put the book there. But it was the area of the country because when my husband and I would travel to France, I'm like, oh, we always had to go to the in-laws. It was just no fun. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he promised me, all right, next trip, we'll go to the south of France and go where you want to go. But where he wanted to go was where he grew up, um, going skiing in Chamonix and and hiking on Mount Blanc and cross-country skiing and you know, I, I'm the kind of person that's like, I will wave at you from the lodge while I have a glass of wine and a good book. I'm also that person. Yeah. Put me on skis. I will be dead in 15 seconds. I guarantee you (laughs) have no interest in going uncontrolled, fast downhill over ice on skis. It's an, it's a form of insanity that makes no sense to me, but yet I say to the rest of the world, enjoy I'll be working on a book, okay? So, so I had to go there and see what he loved. It was it was just like a way of of going with him. And Annecy is such a beautiful city. It's so charming. It's it is the Venice of France. It's at the foot of the mountains. And the cool thing about Annecy is that I have zero sense of direction. I can literally get lost in my own backyard. I did get lost in Annecy, but the mountain is huge. It's always there. So I've always kept the mountain in a certain place and went in that direction and then asked policemen because my French was good enough to say, uh, I'm lost. And then they would say left or right and I would point and they would take my arm and point the other way. (laughs) (laughs) And by following the mountain and directions from police officers and feathers that were laid at a cross section. Uh, I told my French tutor that, and he said, I worry about you, madame. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> that is how Lynn finds her way, which is no wonder I'm always lost. <laughs> well, I wanted to also ask, I read in a couple of interviews, just some interesting places that you um, talk about in terms of your reading life and your writing life. You talk about having a reading tree um, growing up. I'd love to hear about that. And then I also read that you, um, I also read that you write in a Ukrainian coffee shop in an old bourbon warehouse. So these reading and writing locations, I would love to hear more about. Okay. Well, the, um, the reading tree was when I was little, um, we lived in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, what we had what I considered to be an enormous backyard. And there were so many trees that and we, you know, we kids are always fighting over things. My mother finally said, this is your tree. 
this is your tree and this is your tree and you cannot get in each other's trees without permission. So I would, um, and I'm afraid of heights. So I would climb up in my tree with a book and then I could not come down because I just, I climb up things. You don't want to go hiking with me because if I climb up, you know, a steep thing, then I'll just sit there and go, okay, I'm done. I'm going to die here. I'm afraid I can't come down. It's really annoying to have me along on a hike like that. Um, and I would just sit up in the tree and read until eventually my mother missed me and she'd send my brother out to find me and go, oh, I don't know where Lynn is. She's probably in the tree. And he would come and he would say, come down. And I wouldn't come down because I would be scared. So he'd push on the bottoms of my feet till I fell out of the tree and then he would catch me, which is <laughs> such a big brother thing to do, right? I'm going to knock you out of the tree, but I'll catch you before you fall down. And he always did catch me. He was a fabulous brother. And oh, I um, love that. I know he was so great. Um, so funny because he was dyslexic and he couldn't read. Um, but he always had stacks of my books on his coffee table. And he used to introduce me as his overachieving little sister, which oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the coffee shop is so cool because it's in the distillery district where I live in my shady little neighborhood. And, um, it was just an old uh, bourbon warehouse and they're, they're renovating the whole area and they're building there. And it's very, very cool. And you'll know you have a very swanky, cool hotel right next to um, rundown mechanics shop. And then we've got the doggy daycare and then we've got the oil company, <laughs> you know, it's just, a, it's crazy, which I kind of like. Um, yeah. So I'm a little subversive. Can't be too nice or I'm just going to go, eh, no, thanks. But this, it's so, it's got such tall ceilings and they've laid it out in a way that's just, I don't know, it, do, it doesn't, it, you know, it's like those big garage doors that you can open when the weather's nice. The coffee is fabulous. And um, they always, you know, they always call your coffee order out and I would never go get it because I couldn't hear them and I'd be writing. And this is when I was coming out of the closet and, uh, you know, one day they came to my table and said, you, why do you never come pick your coffee up? Don't you like our coffee? And I'm like, no, I love your coffee. I just can't hear it when you call it. And then since I'm writing, I don't go, oh, where's my coffee? And they said, oh, okay. So now they just bring it to me. So that's the terrible oh. thing. <laughs> that's the terrible <laughs> thing that happened when I fessed up to my hearing loss. They brought me my coffee. You start getting raw coffee. <laughs> if you tell people, that. you allow them to help you out a little bit. Oh, it's yeah. turned out to be a very good thing. That's great. And that sounds like a place that would have very good writing vibes. You've got to have a good a good place to write. Yeah. Um, I'll walk into a coffee shop and turn around and walk back out. I'm like, I know. I don't know why. I can't write here. You know, but that place I write very well. I wrote most of this book in that coffee shop. That's so interesting. And was it, um, you know, kind of a straightforward writing process? Did you take a lot of wrong turns? Was there a lot of revision? What was the process like? Uh, it was straight, well, it was straightforward, but a deep dive into the, um, you know, into the research on climate change and wildfires in the mountain. And, and I would find out such interesting things. It's like, there's this Oh, tornado wind that comes through in the winter uh, in the Smoky Mountains. And that happened when this little fire was burning. And it was just, oh, I, I didn't realize how dangerous that was. I didn't even know it was a thing. Um, and then, as usual, I write myself into corners. I'm like, 
oh, I should have thought of that. Wonder what are they going to do now? And then like in the big finale scene, which is my editor says was absolutely jaw dropping. And it's, uh, and I, I won't do spoilers, but it, it, it is a, she is in great peril and she takes extreme measures. Um, I had no idea what she was going to do. So I threw her into it and I'm like, wow. Oh yeah. Wow. Cause it's what, what would you do? What if you got, you know, to hand, how can you survive? Yeah. Yeah. So I was um, definitely on the edge of my process. <laughs> Yeah, I won't give anything away, but I was definitely on the edge of my seat reading oh, reading that scene for sure. Oh my goodness, I'm like getting chills. <laughs> <back again. laughs> um, it was very intense. Um, well, you know, I just one of my last questions. I'm curious. You know, we talked about kind of having your reading tree as as a child. What's your reading life like these days? And are there books that you'd want to recommend to listeners? Okay, so the favorite place, you know, like. One way I really love to read is, um, I mean, often I'm curled up with my dog, but if I need to get out and I also want to read, I'll go someplace for dinner with a book and uh, have a nice meal and a glass of wine. And um, I find that a lot of times the people on staff or at tables around me want to know what I'm reading and why and want to talk books, which is kind of lovely. And I've had, you know, staff people come can I take a picture of your book because what you say sounds really good and I'm going to go get that so but (laughs) I know so but my two most favorite books in the whole world are one Benstead's Safari by Rachel Ingalls which is utterly brilliant completely unexpected and um wow a little subversive I was, it's one of the best books. I mean, it's just thrilling. I can't recommend it enough. Rachel Ingalls, wow, what an amazing writer. And then the other one, which may surprise you, is The Ghost in Mrs. Muir by R.A. Dick. It is not like that old television show that I watched when I was a kid. This is a very subversive feminist book. And it's absolutely hilarious. And it's romantic. And it has a lot of life wisdom. And it's a wonderful place to curl up and get away from the big bad world. Well, I'll definitely have to link to both of those and, and check them out. And, um, you know, for, for readers like me who will also be um, looking forward already to your next book, once yes. they, you know, because I'm done with The Beautiful Risk and it's like, what's next? Um, are you <laughs> able to say, say anything about a next book? Is that in the works already? Well, you know, I'm thinking of a sequel to The Beautiful Risk. I'm thinking of a standalone, but I just turned a book into my um, my editor, and I'm doing the revisions right now. And that book will be out uh, May the 7th of 2024. And this is the second in the series of, uh, and this is so different, it's Noah Archer. He's a neurologist, a neurosurgeon, actually, um, who was possessed as a child. And um, he finds himself in enormous trouble in book one and even in more trouble in book two, because this is the science of darkness, okay? The first book, you know, does have exorcism and priests, but I wanted to go beyond that in this new book. And I was looking at the science of what could be behind this phenomenon where people feel they're under spiritual attack and where things happen 
that are terrifying and have no explanation. And you can go, yeah, fine. You don't have to believe in that, except if it's happening right there in your uh, bedroom, you're going to want to figure it out. So I I did come up with a scientific explanation. um, And that terrifies me because it's like, oh, no, that really sounds plausible to me. I do not like the sound of that. (laughs) My editor said, Oh, thank you so much. I will never be safe again. <laughs> oh, well, I'm definitely going to have to check that out then. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of it was inspired. I just have to know. <laughs> it was inspired by true events, which is even more terrifying. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So more more to come for sure. And I'm excited that there might be a sequel for The Beautiful Risk. Um, but actually, I just meant to ask, too, because, you know, thinking about that very intense scene that you mentioned and you know, mm-hmm. setting and everything. I was just curious if you can say anything, if you've been approached about film rights or anything. You know, I haven't, be, uh, but um, when the book, interestingly enough, when the book was, uh, you know, we made that little announcement in publisher's marketplace, which is, you know, mainly for people who, you know, are deep in the industry, normal people could care less what's in there, but we did get an inquiry on film rights with that. And then of course um, the strike happened and the book wasn't out yet. So, right. Right. And, and there's been some interest in the, uh, the Noah Archer series. So, but you know, you know how that is. You don't want to count on anything. Um, I do. I do. I think the beautiful risk would be an incredible film, but I don't know a single novelist that doesn't feel that way about their book. Yes, but I feel like some just lend themselves even more than, than others. I just feel like yeah. this one, the setting yeah. and the just, it already has that like cinematic feel in some ways. So I'll, I'll be hopeful. Yeah, the strike I'm sure is probably it's slow and it was probably making it even more slow. For- I, like, I like the feeling I get that you might want to go back to that world because I do have three chapters into a sequel. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of readers will want to go back. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on. I loved hearing more about the beautiful risk in your writing. And I hope that any listeners um, who haven't picked up a copy yet will go out and get it. And um, I will look forward to, to reading the next books that come out. And best of luck with all the promotion and everything for this one. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for talking to me. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.